Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, it's, it is Red Sunday, but it is also going to be our final week in our series, You Ask For It. And it's just a Q&A series that we've done now. This is the fifth week and where you submit questions, and we try to see what the Bible says about those questions. So today in our final week, we're going to look at two questions, and today we're going to be looking at these, these ideas, laws and vows, laws and vows. Now, an important thing with both of these topics is you want them to be clear, right? You want, you want the, a, a law to be clear so you know how to follow it. You want a vow to be clear so you know if you want to enter into this agreement, this commitment. Uh, but with that, sometimes both of these, while you want them to be clear, sometimes they can both be complicated. They can both become convoluted. I don't know if you notice any, any laws that have passed in our, in our federal government lately. They're thousands of pages long. Uh, that's, that seems to be fairly complicated to me. And they're passed before anyone can even read what's in it to know what they're, you know, what they're trying to vote on to pass as the law. But that's just how it seems to be. But you want them to be clear and when they're complicated or convoluted, you have to maybe work through some issues. Like, is this a thing that, is this basically given in goodwill? Is, have circumstances changed since this law or this vow was made or passed that maybe it should be altered or maybe it shouldn't be followed the same way anymore because circumstances have changed? Those are the kind of things that we'll look at today and talking about, again, laws and vows. And the law and the vow that we're going to look at are both specific and so let's start with the first one. It's a question about the Old Testament law. It's a pretty common question, but we'll, we'll spend m- majority of our time on the first question. So once I finish it, don't look at your watch and be like, oh my goodness, we're only halfway. We're not. The second question about the vow is going to be much shorter. So just a little, little heads up there for you. The game's not till 325. So I figure I got plenty of time. And next week's game is a night game. So buckle up, bring a lunch next. I'm just kidding. Not, I'm not going to do it either. It's pretty, pretty, pretty simple today. First question on the law is this. There are hundreds of Old Testament Jewish laws, so which laws did Jesus fulfill as he says in Matthew 5? There are hundreds of Old Testament laws, Jewish laws, that's true. We'll talk about that in a second. So which laws did Jesus fulfill as he says in Matthew 5? Well, to really get into the question, let's read the scripture that the question is referencing. Matthew 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Then he goes on to say, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Here's how it ends on verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, the question is, and this answer may seem a little bit complicated, but we'll work through it here for just a little bit. There are hundreds of Old Testament Jewish laws. There are 613 of them, to be exact. That seems like quite a few rules to follow. Uh, so, which of, if Jesus says he fulfilled them, first of all, what does that actually mean? We'll look at that. And then how does that affect how or if we follow them? And if so, which ones and how do we know? Because we're not Jews. These are Old Testament Jewish laws, right? So how do we know which ones to follow, if any? That's what we're going to look at. What I want to do is answer this question on three different levels. That I think will help us to understand the purpose of what Jesus means when he says he fulfills the law and then helps us to figure out what that means for our lives. So I want to answer this on a scriptural level, on a spiritual level, and then on a situational level. So scripturally, what does Jesus mean when he fulfills the law? What does that mean? Spiritually, what does that mean? And then uh, situationally, in my everyday life, what does that mean? So let's look at the scriptural uh, understanding of this first. So I think Jesus here means what he says. I mean, it's pretty clear. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get rid of the law or throw it away. I actually came to fulfill the law. So he means what he says. He is the fulfillment of the law. So from the very beginning, even Old Testament, even though it sounds different and reads different and looks different and it is different, the idea is still the same, that human sin separates human beings from God. And sin must be atoned for. That penalty must be paid for in some way on some level. That's always been the case even in the Old Testament law. And so the Old Testament law gave ways to do that. There were different types of offerings or animal sacrifices that God put in the law to say, okay, basically if you, if you commit this minor, minor sort of types of sin, you can give these maybe smaller, more minor offerings that will then atone for that sin or those sins. And then the larger the sin, the larger the sacrifice. So, man, if you've really blown it, you better get your sheep or your cow ready and take it to the temple because it's time to pay up. It's time to atone for your sin. So these offerings and sacrifices, though, here's what Jesus is saying. Those were always pointing towards something else outside of themselves. And they were pointing, he says, to him, that he is the fulfillment of the law. And it's not just the sacrifice part, it's the whole thing, he's saying. It's culminated in him. And we can see this, he makes it pretty clear, because he doesn't just say the law, he says the law and the prophets. So in essence, what he's saying is, All of the scripture to his audience, all of the scripture that you've ever read has always been pointing to me. It's always been pointing to me. And there are different parts of that that are very offensive to the people listening. Uh, But what Jesus has always said has always been offensive to many people and still is uh, today. So that hasn't changed. But that's what he's saying. The law and the prophets, all scripture has been always pointing to him. Now, it's been in bits and pieces, it's been in types and shadows, and it wasn't obvious clearly uh, that that's what was going on. But Jesus makes it clear once he enters human history, once he hits this planet, he makes it known, hey, this whole thing, this whole belief system that you have devoted your life to has actually been pointing to a person, not a belief system. So maybe an easy way to think about this is to illustrate it by like making a cake, okay? That's what Jesus is trying to get across to them. So when you bake a cake, you have all these different ingredients that on their own don't really make a lot of sense or on their own aren't going to taste good, like raw eggs. 
you know, not great. Or just flour, yeah, um, so good, you know. No, but when you put those ingredients together and you mix them up and you put them in the oven for the right amount of time, what comes out is a wonderful, amazing, beautiful, tasty cake. That's what the Old Testament law is like. So for there were, you know, like Abraham, he might be the raw eggs in this equation. And on his own, he's great, but you, there's always something, there's always this tension, I think, as you read the Old Testament, to like, that's great, but there, there seems to be something else that should be going. And it's like, well, then it builds on to his ancestors. You add in, you know, some flour, you add in a little bit of milk, you add in all the ingredients. And then what happens, here's how I make this equation work. You get all the ingredients together, and then you put it in the oven, and you wait so between the, the last Old Testament prophet and Jesus, it's about 400 years where God just doesn't speak, doesn't show up really at all in inspired scripture. Now, there are cr- pretty cool historical stories about what we call the intertestamental period. It's a 400-year period, but there's nothing that is like God says anything. So it's like the cake is baking, baking, baking. And then Jesus you know, the bun was literally in the oven with Jesus. He comes out and it's this cake. Now he's saying, I'm fulfilling the law. So what he's not, here's what he's saying. He's saying, now you've got all these things that you, that for thousands of years, we've been mixing these ingredients and adding them. And we always knew there was something more, something else, something yet to come. This wasn't quite finished, quite complete. Well, it's not like you have this bowl of batter and you're like, ah, let's just throw it out. That's what he's saying he didn't do. He said, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the ingredients here that we're just going to throw out in the trash. Well, I'm not going to just, what do we do with this? I'm not just going to sit it on the counter and let it go bad. He's saying, no, what's happened is all these different things have come together over these thousands of years. It's been in the oven, and now I've come to fulfill that. He is the cake, right? He is the fulfillment of all of this history and all of this law. It was always pointing to him. So scripturally, that's what we're talking about. The, the law and the prophets always pointed to Jesus, and he, affir- he affirms that here in Matthew 5. So that's, that's the mechanics of what we're talking about, but let's get to like the, the, the power behind this statement. And that's where we get into the spiritual aspect of Jesus fulfilling the law. Spiritually, what does that mean? Well, Paul tells us a little bit of what, the power of what that means in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, when he writes... So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Now that may sound different, but in fact, this was always true. Even during the time of the law, that was true. Even during the height of the law, that was true. How do we know that? We can look at somebody like Abraham who preceded the law. And he found favor with God. He was declared righteous by God. How? His faith, it couldn't have been through the law because there was no law yet. Abraham preceded the law by hundreds and hundreds of years. Yet, uh, Genesis 15, and it's echoed in the book of Hebrews, he was declared righteous by God through his faith, not by obedience to a set of rules or laws. So this has always been true. It sounds like a revolutionary idea to many that are reading Paul and his letters for the first time, because this is a huge theme for him, especially the book of Galatians. If you want to read about the law versus uh, really the new covenant or grace, Galatians is the book to read, right? That's the whole point, is that he's saying, okay, we, you were under the law, and now you're under grace through Christ. It's a different sort of thing. It's a different sort of feel. So even with the Old Testament law, it wasn't really even about the actions of obedience, but about the heart behind 
the actions that produced obedience. It was about the belief, not in what's written in stone or on a scroll, but in the God that gave these laws or commands. It's about the intention, not the action. So I think that's why in Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to be greater than the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees believed it is all about the law. It is all about strict adherence and obedience to a set of rules. And the other problem that many Pharisees had, now not all of them, uh, so again, the Pharisees get a bad rap, I think. Because they were, I think a lot of them, or some of them at least, were good guys. They loved the law, they loved Israel, they loved God, but there were some, probably near the top, who just loved the law a little too much more than they loved God. That's, that was their issue. They loved the rules more than the rule giver. And so he calls them out over and over because not only do they love the law way too much, but they would add laws to the law. They would put these extra things on people and weigh them down with burdens that they didn't even observe or that God didn't even ask them to observe. And so he calls them out, some of them, but that's why he says this. He says, your righteousness must be greater than theirs. It must be in the lawgiver, not just in the law. So the power spiritually here is the difference with Jesus is the direction in which our faith is placed. Not in the law, but in Jesus now as the sacrifice. And let's go down to Romans 8, because he mentions this too, the same idea here. Romans 8, verse 3, Paul says, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Now to you and I, 2,000 years removed from when this was written, this may seem very subtle. It may seem very clear and obvious to us. But again, to the original audience here, this is not subtle to them. God did what the law could not do. Paul, you can't write that. You can't say that. The law is perfect. The law is wonderful. The law is beautiful. He's saying, well, yeah, it's wonderful and beautiful, and it's as perfect as it could have been in its incomplete state, but Jesus has come to finish, to perfect the law. And here's elsewhere in Romans, Paul tells us, here's the real power of the law. The real power of the Old Testament law is that it exposes our sin. It reveals that we are sinners, Because the law is, hey, do all of these 600 plus things to be perfect as God is perfect, to be holy and righteous as God is. You have to do all these things at all times and never slip up ever once. And so obviously humans slip up more than once, more than small, many times, right? And so the law then says, ah, eh, you got that wrong, eh, you got that wrong. So it says the power of the law was to show that we are sinful, was to expose our sinfulness, which he said for that time and place was what was necessary to get ready for the cake that was to come out of the oven years later. The power of Jesus, though, is not that he exposes our sin, but he does, but that he actually saves us from our sin. Paul says the law couldn't do that. The law could not save us from our sin. And here's here's two things about that that I'll mention briefly at the end of this verse. He says that God declared in Christ an end to sin's control over us. You make a statement that might sound impossible or odd or strange to you, but it's straight from Scripture. Sin has no control over you except for what you give it. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, God declared an end to sin's control over us. So the only control that sin has over me is the control I give it. 
The only power sin has over us is the power that we give it because of our broken, fallen, sinful nature. And Paul says in Romans, we are at war with that nature. He said, I'm at war with that nature. He says, sometimes I know to do right, and yet I don't do it. Sometimes I, I, there, I know I shouldn't do that, but I do that anyway. It's this sinful nature within me. And then he says, who will save me from this? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ will save me from this. So we, yes, we are at war, but God has declared an end to sin's control over us. And the power, the spiritual power behind this is that Jesus, in one sacrifice, did what thousands of sacrifices over hundreds of years could not do. One man did what 613 laws could not do. One man in one lifetime, in one moment of his lifetime, did what thousands of years of obedience to the law could never do. He freed us from sin. He offers lasting salvation once and for all. Peter writes this in one of his letters, sacrifices once and for all, which means it's once and for all, one time is good enough. He didn't have to come and die again and again, just like in the temple, right? In the Old Testament, if you sin again, guess what? Pony up another sheep because you sinned again. Give another dove because you sinned again. Bring more grain because you sinned again over and over and over. But Christ, once and for all, was a sacrifice for all sin. And it was for all, which we'll get to here again uh, in just a second. So spiritually, this, that's powerful. So we see the scriptural benefit or answer to this question about fulfillment of the law in Jesus and now the spiritual power he did what the law could never do in fulfilling the law. Let's get to the third part, the situational part of this. And I think this is mainly the heart behind when this question is asked. It's, it's in a pure place because it's like, okay, I'm a Christian and we have this other half of this book with a lot of things. Do I need to do those things? Am I under obligation to obey these laws that seem strange, that I definitely don't obey, uh, that don't seem culturally appropriate or make any sense? Like, am I missing something? And so that's what we're going to look at here for a minute, too, the situational aspect of this question. Again, let's go to Paul, Galatians 3.28. Paul's, again, making a big statement here. He says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a big statement because in the Jewish culture, especially the ancient Jewish culture, it did matter if you were Jew or Gentile, if you were male or female, if you were slave or free. There were, there were definitions to how much you could do in this religion based on what, de what description you have or who you are. There's only so far you can go if, you, if you're in this category and no further. There's only so many things you can do and no more if you're in a certain category. But Paul says, hey, Jesus came for everyone. And that's a big deal. So what Jesus did in fulfilling the law was he changed what I would call the essential nature of the law. So the Old Testament law, as it's written, is an ethnic law code, okay? But Jesus came to bring a personal relationship. The Old Testament law is, is, is national. It's for Israel. But Jesus came to bring this movement globally, the Old Testament law, as we have it, as it's written, as we read it, is, is, is outward in scope. It is about obedience. It is about service. It is about doing certain things in a certain way at certain times on certain days. But Jesus came to do something inward. So he, he changes the essential nature of the law from ethnic to personal, from national to global, and from outward to inward. Because here, here's maybe something that we don't 
realize when we read the Old Testament. The purpose of the Old Testament law is not rules to keep Israel in line. It's not really the purpose behind it. The true purpose behind the Old Testament law is to give Israel an identity. It's, it's, not, it's not so much rules to keep them in line, it's parameters to define who they are. Because, and that's the reason that we see such a disconnect between our culture and the Old Testament. Well, because those rules defined a certain people group at a certain time, at a certain place, in a certain part of the world. And that's the whole point. That's why God says, hey, the other nations don't do these things, but I'm having my people do these things. He says, I'm calling you to be what he called a peculiar people, right? To be a, a holy, set-apart sort of people group. Israel, my people, my chosen people. And so to distinguish you from all the other people in the world, then you're going to need to eat this way and live this way and behave this way and fall within these certain descriptions and fall within these certain boundaries and, and do things in a certain light. So again, it's not so much, now it is, but it's not so much rules to follow, but it's an identity. It's a description of who Israel is and who they're also not. That's really, the, I think, the purpose of the law. And so these laws, in many ways, are distinct from the nations and cultures around them. But again, what, what Jesus came to do was to expand the reach of who is included into God's people. One of the most famous verses, if you watch the game today, if somebody with a poster might have this, right? At the goalpost, John three sixteen. okay? God so loved the world, he loved the, so it's not God so loved the Israel, right? God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever would believe in him. That's not how the Old Testament law works. There are rules for how you can get in. There are things and requirements that you have to do and have to meet to get in. There are things that you have to change about your way of life to get in, and it still is with Jesus, but not in the same way as the Old Testament law. He says he loved the world so much that he gave us so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. So that's different. Again, it seems very subtle because it's a very famous verse, but that's revolutionary. Even the guy that's talking to Jesus in John 3, Nicodemus, who's a very high-ranking Pharisee, very educated guy, he doesn't know what to do with that. He's like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. No, no, that's, that's not how our religion works. That, that's not what I've been taught. That's not what I teach. That doesn't make any sense. You're blowing my mind, Jesus. And so even this guy didn't quite get it. That's why most people didn't get it, because it was so revolutionary to them. So uh, that, that's, that's part of that. Let me give you one example, and then we'll be done with this question move on to the second one. Let me give you one situational question that Jesus actually talks about. So a lot of times we think, well, sometimes Paul will talk about, especially in Galatians, about not obeying the law in this way anymore because Jesus fulfilled it. But, you know, I don't know. You know, and I don't know, Peter, he, there's some stories about him and different things. Actually, Jesus gives us a big description here, situationally, specifically, about how there's a shift in the law once he enters the scene. So let's read this real quick. Mark, it's Mark 7, starting at verse 14. And it says this, Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. That's a big statement. So much so, here's what happens next. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him, what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either, he asked? Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But, and Mark tells us exactly what's going on here. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. Again, not a small thing for Jesus to say. 
his own followers don't, it's like, nah, maybe Jesus, maybe I, maybe I missed one of the laws that said, never mind about the other stuff, you know, like, did I miss one of those? Is there like an addition here that, that you have, that we don't have, that we need to have? And he's like, nope, I'm, I'm fulfilled the law, right? So even Jesus himself, during his life, talks about the different types of law and the way that we would think of it. So this was offensive to a lot of people. As I said, Jesus still offends a lot of people, so he hasn't changed at all in that capacity whatsoever. But even here, what, what he's doing is he's planting the seeds for what faith now will look like. And for the, the Jews here, it's going to look different. If they put their faith in him, it's going to look different from what they are used to, from what they grew up with, from what they know, from what they read. Now, Jesus does affirm what we would call the continuation of the moral law. So we still, you know, can't kill each other. It's not, in Jesus' name, I'm going to murder this person. That's that's not how that, no, that's not what that's doing here, right? Uh, He still affirms that because he says the, the law and the prophets are summed up in this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says that fulfills the law and the prophets. So he, he's still saying, yes, there, the criteria on how to live interpersonally still applies. Uh, the major, like, you know, treat people this way still applies. The parts of those laws are there. But in what he's saying here in Matthew 5 and Mark 7, the specific cultural laws, rules, norms have been fulfilled in Jesus. And therefore, uh, our faith is in him, not in keeping those specific type of ethnic laws. Because again, the Old Testament law, I think when we see it this way, it may help us with this question. The Old Testament law is not rules for everyone to keep for all of time forever. Again, it's a description of ancient Israel, their description. And when Jesus fulfills that, now he gives us a revised description of what that looks like. Now, again, we want laws to be clear, and this can seem very complicated. It's so complicated that books and books and books and books and books have been written about this topic for hundreds of years. It's so complicated that for the next couple hundred years, the followers of Jesus, it took them 200 years to figure out what they are now. Like, are we still this? Or are we something totally different? Or are we like a 70-30 split? Or what? It took them literally 200 years to figure out what the Christian church is going to look like. And it's morphed ever since then. But really, it took them that long to even get their, their identity figured out by looking at Jesus. So again, the main idea here is that Faith comes by grace through Jesus. Faith in him saves us, and then we're to follow his words and his teachings. Uh, and again, that, that may seem overly simplified, and I would spend more time on that, but I'm not going to. So that, that, that's, I think that's the best I can get without getting too into the weeds on some of this stuff. So hopefully that was helpful. If I, made, if I gave you more questions than answers, just uh, email me this week, and I'll see if I can clear anything up that I made more complicated just now. So that's the question about laws, the laws. So now we're going to look at a question about vows. And this is um, more of a today kind of personal type of question. I don't know who it's from. uh, So, you know, I I can't like, never mind. Anyway, here's the question about vows. We're talking about laws. Here's the question about vows. Question, here's the way it was worded. So I just worded it this way. Why won't some people say obey in their marriage vows? Why won't some people say obey? And I'm assuming here it's women that's usually the woman's part to say, right, uh, in their marriage vows. And my immediate answer is because they don't want to lie and they have no intention of obeying in their marriage, so they just don't say it. No, that, that's probably not why. I will say this. 
There is no marriage vow in the Bible. We'll, we'll read a scripture in here. It gets really close to it. There, but there's no marriage vow in the Bible that we have to do. I've done lots of weddings, and the vows are different in different weddings. Some are worded one way for some reasons. Some are worded a different way for other reasons. Some weddings are way more religious than others. It just varies from couple to couple and situation to situation, pastor to pastor, whatever. So there's no, like, rule that the wife has to say, I will obey my husband in a wedding vow. or there's, It's just not there, Okay. What I do want to do is read what I think is the ultimate scripture on marriage in all of the Bible. It's in Ephesians chapter 5, and this is where we get this idea from, but I'll explain what it, I think what it really is trying to get us uh, to understand here. So Ephesians 5, 21 through 26. Paul again here, he writes, And further, this is the part that we don't read a lot, Further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's a big deal. For wives, so he gives a description of wives and husbands. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. So this key word, submit, is one that comes up several times here. And that's where, in some, I probably, I was going to look back this week and see if I've used the word obey. I probably have. Um, usually it's like love, honor, obey. Submit is the word here where all that comes from, this word submit. Now, submit, first of all, doesn't just mean blindly obey. It does not mean that. Okay? It doesn't mean if your husband's beating you and he's, you have to stay there forever. I'll, maybe that's an offensive statement to some of you, but that's not what the Bible says. I think there's too many, for a long time, that was the belief. There's no, it's like, no, that's, that's not what that is saying at all. Okay? I think what it instead means is the wife is to lovingly follow her husband. So, for the rest of this question, I'm going to talk to the husbands because I know the question is about what wives say in their wedding vows, but the most important part of answering this question is about what the husbands are to do in the marriage. And I'll tell you, you'll, you'll see why here in just a second. So I'll make a statement that might get a gasp. I hope it does. So I want to say it, get the reaction. I will say this. When I read Ephesians 5, here's what I see. I see that the wife's job in marriage is easier than the husband's job in marriage. Very good. Very good. The wife's job is easier than the husband's job. You know why? The wife's job is to lovingly follow and submit to her husband. The husband, then, what would he have to do? If, so, if, so, if someone's following you, that means you have to be leading them, which is a more difficult job. Now, again, you're like, well, if your husband's a terrible leader, then it's hard to follow. I get that, but that's his problem. You know, so we gotta, we got to talk to him about that. So if the wife is to follow, it means the husband is to lead. That's responsibility. That's a calling. It's not just this thing, oh, let's get hitched, let's get married. No, no, no. This is like a bigger deal than that, okay? So how must the husband lead? Uh, two, two ways that I'll mention. The first one is the key one that I want to really get to. The husband must serve his wife sacrificially. That's what Paul says. He says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. What did he do for her? He died for her. He died for the church. So husbands, we're to put our wife's interests above our own. Like, that's our calling. That's our job description. We're to give our wives our time, our attention, our affection, our intention. Okay? 
And this is even and especially when we don't want to or don't feel like it, you know, or it's just too much or I can't handle it. Sorry, sucker. You're the leader. Deal with it. That's what, Paul, that's what Paul's saying here. He's not saying there's other options. He's saying, no, husbands, serve your wife sacrificially. That's it. And, and then she is to follow. So we're called to do this even when it costs us, even when it's inconvenient. Uh, we're to, called to guard and protect our wives. Uh, and we lead not only sacrificially, but we lead by serving them. Serving them. Okay? Not to, so again, that's the whole point, the problem with the obey word. It's about the wife serving the husband. Actually, it's the opposite of that, right? The husband serves his wife. That's what this, that, maybe I'll put that in the vows for now. I'm going to get a pen and write that down for my next wedding. Husband, serve your wife. I probably will do that, huh? seriously. Um, that's a good idea. So we lead sacrificially and we lead by service. Now, let me just say this. Let me just ask the women in the room this question. If your husband sacrificially served you, wouldn't you then submit to him pretty easily? I would think so. I would think that if this guy's going to, if he needs to lay down his physical life for me, I will follow that man. I, would, I will submit to him. I will follow where he goes because he's going to protect me. He's going to lay down his life. He's going to put the coat, you know, on the puddle across the street for me, right? He's, he's going to sacrifice his time for me. He's going, to, he's going to serve me. I think that wives would submit if their husbands would serve. So that's, a, that's maybe a good, a good call here for husbands um, to do sort of this checklist internally in our brains. Now, I will say there is, I think, m- in modern thinking, there is disagreement on this method of marriage. Um, and I would also say that's why half of marriage is in divorce, <laughs> because modern, we don't want to do what, you know. And that's the whole point. The whole point of this, anything in Scripture, is this is God's design. For this thing. Just like Genesis 1, 2, 3, like that was God's design for the universe. He tells us how things happen. Now, not specifically, you know, he's not saying that we rotate at 24,000 miles an hour and we're tilted on a 23 and a half degree, you know, tilt. On, he doesn't, it's not in Genesis, but we see that there is design to it. There's purpose behind it. There's intention behind it. Ephesians 5 is that same thing for marriage how it should function, how it should work, how God designed it to work with his divine order. Now, it's not necessarily a certain set of rules or a certain, we have to fit in this box and this box. Different relationships are different. So what may, be, what may look like service and submission is going to differ and vary from couple to couple and from, even from time to time. We go through seasons in life and in marriage and relationships, so there may, there may be times where that looks different or feels different. Or it, so it's not like a static thing, okay? It can, it, there's wiggle room there. There's room for that to change. But the general principle always applies. Husbands sacrificially serve and wives submit. That's, that's what this is. So this, and this God-designed method works. So again, when I talk about the modern culture kind of wanting to buck this and say, no, that's oppressive to women, and, you know, we're talking about equal everything and all that's like, that's garbage. It's just nonsense. So you can try it that way and come back to me when it doesn't work, and I'll tell you what God said a long time ago that will work, okay? Uh, and again, so with that, quickly, it is also, um, this is how Christian marriage should work. So if someone who is not a Christian would say, I don't believe in that, I'd say, you don't believe in any of this, so that, that makes sense. 
fine. I wouldn't expect you to believe in the godly way of marriage when you don't only really believe in God. So that, that's fine. I'm just telling, I, that's, that's another good point too. So the modern culture, they don't believe in God anyway, for the most part. They don't do anything else that he says, so why would they try to do marriage his way? So it's not that we should have this expectation of people who don't believe to do this. Now, if they do, that's great. I would say apply that logic to every other part of your life and submit your life to Jesus and your whole life will be a lot better. But that, this is a description for a Christ-centered, God-designed marriage. Husbands lovingly, uh, sacrificially submit, and wives, uh, wait, did I say submit? The hus- did I say that? Ah, Fro- that was a Freudian slip where you say one thing but mean your mother. Um, yeah. Husbands sacrificially serve and wives lovingly submit. That's what I was trying to say. I think you know what I'm trying to say, even if I don't know what I'm trying to say. So let's bring these two topics together here with laws and vows. With that, whichever one it is, again, both we want to be simple, but they're not always simple, are they? We want them to make a lot of sense and be straightforward, but it can be kind of murky and messy sometimes. Whether we're talking about Old Testament law or, or your marriage vows or whatever, but here's the point. The point is that we understand the heart behind both the laws and the vows and that we seek wisdom from God and the power of the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus in both of these areas. That's, that's the point. Understand the heart behind them and do our best as much as we can by God's grace with his help to live these out every single day.